It's such a marvelous blessing, isn't it, today to assemble and to be gathered in the way that we are this first day of the week, this third day of the year 2016, as we have come together this morning to lift high the banner of God's commandments and to, in fact, bring ourselves, reminding ourselves in life of how important it is to follow His Word. We're going to consider for the next few moments a lesson, in fact, touching that book that perhaps is open on your lap, the Holy Word of God, the Bible. It's fair to say, as we'll notice in some of these opening comments, that the attitude, the perspective that a person has toward the Bible will determine to a large extent his or her obedience or disobedience thereto. I suppose that comment by itself is not that surprising. Your attitude and mind towards so many matters of life will determine by and large our achievement in that matter. It will determine our conviction concerning that matter. The exact same thing is true, isn't it, in regard to the Bible? You can think about an athlete for a moment. This person may have an enormous amount of talent, but if his or her attitude isn't proper with respect to, to that athletic activity, he or she will not work as hard as they should, will not be a contributing member of the team as they should. The same comments are quite frankly true, at least in principle, with regard to the Bible. Your attitude and mind toward it will by and large determine whether we will obey it or not. Let's develop that premise a little bit more thoroughly over the course of our study time this morning. We'll be looking at several verses of Scripture. In fact, I'd like to share with you three, perhaps, perspectives on the Bible. The third one we will develop in a fair amount of detail. But as we begin to look at them, let's first begin like this one. We'll do so by first highlighting the approach to the Bible. These opening comments that I have for you on this screen, many of which are easily appreciated, I suppose that there will be very, very few people in the world who would say that the Bible is not an influential book. Even those that don't believe it would be likely to say that at least it would be fair to assert that the Bible has had an enormous influence over the character of human life as we know it. But as you can see on that slide that immediately asks us to perhaps note these facts. I'm sure we've all heard about the New York Times bestseller list and how often it is that a particular book that someone will write will come to the top of that and it'll be a book that will gain a lot of acclaim. Did you ever stop to realize with me that the Bible is by far the best-selling book worldwide? Even the best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list is a far distant second to the Bible. Far more copies of the Bible are sold annually than any other book, period, no matter where it may land on the New York Times bestseller list. That statement alone, though, immediately tells us something. That means that list directly excludes the Bible. If the Bible were included, it would always be at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Although there are so many copies that are sold and although so many copies are accessed, you'll immediately notice the Bible is nonetheless not often obeyed. There are still so many occurrences and so many individuals who, though they may have a copy, maybe even many of them, still they don't obey it. Why not? May I suggest that that may, in fact, relate very critically to their perspective, their attitude, if you will, toward the Bible. 
same thing, of course, is true of you and me. If you or I fail to obey it, if you or I fail to appreciate it, then quite likely it would be easy to correlate that disobedience to how we feel about this book. We're going to develop that in some detail and do so, I hope, with a few biblical examples. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, our attitude, our perspective on the Bible is critical. So much so that may I suggest our eternal destiny hinges upon it. The first perspective that I would ask you to consider is this one. There are some who would say the Bible is not the Word of God. There, were some, there are some in our world who very openly, very directly, very straightforwardly, and with rather notable expression would say the Bible is not the Word of God. I'd ask you to notice, clearly infidels and atheists are going to fall in that category. There are people who would admit the existence of the Bible, but they don't believe it's the Word of God. When you ask them what they do think the Bible is, most of the time it's expressions, at least in my research, that can be summarized with that statement next on that slide. They think that the Bible is a compilation of legends, stories, myths, and other kinds of productions of the mind of man, and it's no more than that. It may have some history thrown into it, but nonetheless, at least in their mind, it is a book which is not the Word of God, and as those descriptions would suggest, it is on par with uh, many other books that humans would write. You will perhaps notice very critically, to say that only atheists and only those that would infidels might think this would be a little bit too much of a statement. Would you be shocked or surprised? Notice the wording of this religious person. Here is a religious person, a pastor of the Missionary Baptist Church. His name is Alexander Barron, and I even put in quotation marks what this gentleman has claimed. He says, I do not believe the Holy Bible is the infallible Word of God. So may we say it is not restricted to just infidels and atheists. There are even religious folks who would call into question the veracity and the nature of the Bible as the Word of God. And ultimately they would even confess and admit that it's not so, at least in their thinking. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, what might we conclude? Earlier in our study this morning, in fact in our Bible reading, Andrew read for us from Matthew 4 verse 4. On that occasion when Jesus Himself was being tempted, did He not immediately answer when He was tempted by the tempter to turn the stones into bread? It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The Son of God on that occasion called to your attention and mine the fact there is something so incredibly vital Man shall not live by bread alone. The Word of God, then, Jesus would quickly say to all those people who would be in category one, those who do not think the Bible is the Word of God, they are standing directly opposed to God Himself and opposed to the Son of God and opposed to the thoroughness and richness available as rewards and promises of the Word of God. They are missing the greatest truth of all. Now, I suppose that in this audience, I probably don't speak to anyone that would be in that category. 
we have assembled on this first day of the week because the Bible has commanded it and thus we have confidence and we trust in it at least to a, to a great amount. But may I say that there are more comments that might be made and other perspectives that we often hear. Let's look at the second one while we're at it. First one, the Bible is not the Word of God. Look at this one. The Bible contains the Word of God. Now by itself, that likely sounds very promising and it sounds very telling and it likely sounds like a wonderful thing. But there is a poisonous snake lurking beneath the surface of this one. It is not as it claims. Consider this statement. Suppose someone says, I believe the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, what might one conclude by virtue of the way that statement's made? And notice what is not affirmed in it. I would ask you to develop it with me like this. Those who would feel this way consider that in this book is the Word of God, but that it is admixed with fables and stories and matters of history that themselves are not trustworthily reliable matters from heaven. Do you see the point? Those who think that the Bible contains the Word of God think God's Word's in there somewhere. But digging it out may be nearly impossible, or at least it's very difficult, and all that other stuff that's in there with it is not reliable. What do you think about that? To look upon the Bible that way, to give thought to the following, may I ask, didn't we begin the lesson by noting that one's attitude, one's perspective toward the Bible will likely determine his or her obedience to it? Clearly, those who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God are not going to be likely to believe anything it says. What about these individuals? What if a person believes the Bible contains the Word of God? Well, when it comes to a passage, then that really tells them to stop doing something they've been doing. It'd be easy to conclude that's one of the parts that's not the Word of God. That's one of the parts that is not to be relied upon and is not trustworthy. And so I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. Those passages that condemn sexual sin, well, that part's not inspired, these people perhaps would say. These particular parts that in fact condemn other aspects like social drinking, well, that part's not inspired. God's Word's the other parts, or at least parts that are not that one. It'd be easy to excuse one's behavior if you simply didn't take all of it. The Bible only contains the Word of God, some would say. You'll notice as you come near the bottom, there is a rather fancy-sounding name for this. The partial inspiration theory. Believe it or not, this rather fancy name is it describes the fact that there are those who believe some parts of this book are inspired and some parts of it are the Word of God, but not all of it. Well, who determines then which parts are and which parts are not? You'll notice we're in a very serious conundrum. If we know that God's Word's in here somewhere, how do we peel away all the parts that are not and how do we find which parts are? That's a dangerous consideration, isn't it? This consideration of the Bible containing the Word of God, it is a serious matter when individuals are themselves left to determine what is and what is not inspired. Did the writers of the Bible uphold this viewpoint, either in the Old or the New Testament? 
the answer is an overwhelming no. We never find the slightest hint anywhere. May I ask you to notice 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25. As Peter drew near the close of what you and I would call the opening chapter of that book, he causes us to appreciate in verse number 22 that our consciences are clean because of our obedience to the Word. Which Word, Peter? All of it. Didn't he say in verse number 25, The Word of the Lord endureth forever. He quotes that out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 8, and in so doing highlights the prestige and the infallible character of the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, may I ask you to note, the text says, Every word of God is tried. Which one? He said, Every one of them. When you and I then open this book to claim that it merely contains the Word of God, but that it is not the Word of God itself, that's a devilish doctrine. It is a doctrine coming from the pits of hell itself. Because God doesn't allow us to pick and choose what sections of the Bible we prefer and which sections we want to obey, but which ones we kindly will ignore. God never allowed the Old Testament people that luxury. When He gave the children of Israel that which we call the Law of Moses, we find the presentation of this from the days of Exodus 20 onward. As He gave that law, do we not read in Deuteronomy 8 verse 1, they were to obey every one of the features and considerations of it. They weren't allowed to ignore or neglect some of them. You and I today are in no different situation in principle. Every word of God is tried. Every one of them is true. That means then that when you and I give consideration to the Word of God, if we merely think the Bible contains it, we likely will not obey it because we'll justify our behavior as if that verse is not an inspired one. These first two have been exceedingly dangerous. Number one, again, the Bible is not the Word of God. Number two, the Bible merely contains the Word of God. We've saved the best to last. What is this third one? The one that we will develop mostly through the remainder of our lesson this morning. I've entitled it, Others are convinced that the Bible, all of it, is the Word of God. That's the one the Bible itself teaches. That's the one that in fact the sacred scriptures uphold before you and before me. Let's see how it does this. As we think about the Bible as the Word of God, let's begin as follows. I just mentioned that that's the very thing that the Scriptures claim. Sometimes today when you and I avail ourselves of articles and television programming and other things in which the Bible is under discussion, I would ask you to be mindful of especially that second one we just now discussed, that merely it contains the Word of God, but that's all. Because let's note some verses here that teach very different than that. One by one, in 2 Samuel 23, verse number 2, first, in regard to the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. Now on that occasion it was David who was doing the speaking. But notice what it was that he said. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. So what it was that David was pinning or writing by way of inspiration, the Holy Spirit gave it to him. 
David was not speaking his opinions, his thoughts, his preferences. David was proclaiming that which was the certain word of God. But he went on to say, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. Forevermore, it's significant. He did not say his thoughts, his suggestions, his ideas. He said his word. That which David spoke then was the word of God. That's powerful. Turn over to the book of Jeremiah for just a moment. We might well begin in Jeremiah chapter 1 before we look at the Jeremiah 22 text. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, as the God of heaven commissioned Jeremiah and gave him this interesting word. Note verse number 9 of that opening chapter. Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth. Jeremiah, what are you going to preach? Your thoughts? Your considerations? Of course not. God said, I've given you my words. When you and I then read the book of Jeremiah... We aren't reading Jeremiah's thoughts or preferences. We're reading God's words that He gave to him, the word of the Lord. No wonder then in chapter 22, verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. The reason the earth could hear the word of the Lord, of course, was because that's what Jeremiah was preaching, and that's what Jeremiah was so expressly proclaiming. As if that isn't enough, go one chapter further to Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces? On that occasion, God's word is likened unto a hammer. It's able to crush and break the rocks in pieces because those who recognize it as the word of God will obey it. They'll understand that their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. It's not enough to believe the Bible just contains the Word of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3, that inspired prophet was expressly given this information. Go and speak expressly with my word unto them. And the adverb expressly is present in there in the Hebrew text. May I ask then as we continue our study, what's your perspective on this book? What's mine? I suppose it's easy when we come to passages that don't really cause any necessary change in my life. But when I get to those passages that step hardly on my toes or on yours, if I believe this book is the Word of God, I should strive at once to repent and make necessary changes because it's the Word of God. It's not just a man talking. It's not just a group of men talking. It's the God of heaven who has told us what is necessary and what will be vital at judgment. As you come beyond that observation, you'll notice the lesson text we noted this morning. Jesus in Matthew 4 verse 4 said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds from His mouth. Now where are those words found? They're in this book. Thus did Job say in Job 23, 12, I will esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Do you and I look upon the Bible as more vital, more essential, more necessary, more important than even physical food? Job did. We won't be judged on the day of judgment by virtue of what we had for breakfast today, but we will be judged based on our obedience to what this book says. Do you and I then give proper heed and proper appreciation to the sacred text of the Word? It is the Word of God. 
How about the New Testament? We so far have looked at the Old Testament. And we've reminded ourselves that those 39 books are extraordinarily vital in the sense that they present principles and teachings. But we, of course, live beneath the New Testament today. I would select these and ask you to consider them. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, as Paul addressed the church in Thessalonica, wasn't it to them that he said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. The church in Thessalonica was thus told this, When you heard us preach and you received the word of God, you did not treat it like the words of men, you treated it like the very thing that it is, the Word of God. Oh, how great a compliment that was. What a marvelous commendation. It might well be to that we could add James 1 verse 18. In the opening statement, near the beginning of that book, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now that statement that, that we find echoed in a couple of passages in the New Testament brings us to the assertion of James 1.18. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. What is it that James called this book? He called it the word of truth, didn't he? One more time, our perspective is critical. I would ask you to come near the bottom of that slide and notice the amazing descriptions about the Bible. As you probably would imagine... As we contemplate what stands before us in the year 2016, today's lesson is a reminder. We must look upon this book as the Word of God. It must be used thoroughly and absolutely for the determination of what is right and what we do individually and collectively. It mustn't be looked upon simply as a neglectful thing or a matter to take it or leave it, for if we leave it, we're going to be lost Leave this book and you'll go to hell. We say that because the Lord through and through made that statement. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, Jesus said in John 12 verse 48. If we choose then to ignore this word, we are consigning ourselves in eternity in hell. How do you and I look on the Bible? It must be looked upon as the word of God. You'll notice in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, perhaps some of our favorite New Testament verses on this point. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Much could be said about that little pair of verses. At least for our discussion, would you note this with me? He said... All Scripture. That is, how much of it? That verse alone destroys this partial inspiration theory. He says, all Scripture. That is, everything the God of heaven has provided, both Old and New Testament, all of it is inspired of God. And as such, it's profitable for doctrine. To find out what is proper and what's true and what's right, it's all in there. It's furthermore profitable for reproof for correcting you and me. It's profitable for rebuke. That is, 
admonitions and warnings that admonish us to make changes of things that we've been doing incorrectly. It's all in there. Finally, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God might be perfect. That word perfect has to do with mature. It has to do with completeness. When you and I proceed our march toward being the complete and mature person, we realize it must be based thoroughly and completely upon the Bible. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So where is faith found, and how does it come about? It comes about by this book, through the application and the obedience thereto. One more time, how do you and I look on the Bible then? When you come to the bottom of that slide, there are some immediate conclusions that follow from our observations. Because God wrote this book, that means that the characteristics of God Himself should be manifested by the book. First of all is inerrancy. Inerrancy. Would you discuss that with me like this? That's a somewhat fancy word. It simply means it doesn't have mistakes in it. It does not have errors or discrepancies, if you please. There aren't any contradictions. There is a thread that's woven through the 66 Bible books. As they quote one another, refer to one another, make allusions to one another, they do so in perfect harmony without discrepancy. God does not lie. He cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us that. And so if He authored this book, we should anticipate there are no lies in it. There are no untruths. There are no mistakes along that line. Aren't you thankful for a book like that? What if your salvation or mine depended on the writings of a man somewhere? Men can be wrong. They often are. Men can be mistaken, although they're honest, in the sense that they believe what they're writing is right, but they're not. We don't have to worry about that, do we? God cannot lie. You'll notice another thing on that sheet, bottom of that slide. Isn't it sad to think about resting one's salvation on the mistaken views of men? What man knows about the plan of salvation unless God has told him? What man knows about the construction of the worship of the church unless God has told him? Well, no man would. God has revealed all of that to us. Not only those things. Look what else we can say about this wonderful Bible and our perspective upon it. At the very top of that slide, I would ask you to consider this. The Bible on so many occasions highlights the marvelous accuracy found in it. And in fact, a whole series, a pretty extensive one at that, could be preached relative to the nature of setting aside what men have thought are its inaccuracies. I would only ask you to notice quickly these verses. In Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. If only more people in our world believe that verse. Which precepts are right? The psalmist said every one of them. Don't you love a presentation of a thought like that? You and I, as we strive then to be pleasing to God, we don't select or choose them, but every one of them are understood to be the truthful presentation from God. In verse 142 of that same chapter, Thy law is the truth. 
I'm sure all of us will be quick to say, we live in an age and in a time when truth is a matter that so often men are willing to discuss as a trivial issue. Some say there isn't any such thing as truth. Others say, well, it does exist, but who in the world is able to tell us what it is? All of those viewpoints miss blatantly the presentation of the Bible. This book is the truth. Men may not like it. Men may oppose it. Others may, in fact, strongly question it. It doesn't change what it says. It still says the same thing it said when God wrote it. It's the truth. When you and I then give our life to it and we believe it to be that, then that means everything else pales into a proper appreciation with respect to it. Nothing in this life is worth going to hell over. We need to live correctly and rightly in such a way that we believe this book exactly for what it says it is. Wouldn't it be a frightful thing on that day of judgment? Maybe all of us at one time or another have tried to picture it. We see the Lord Jesus Christ on a throne and here we are standing before Him. And as we look at what He's using to judge it, we see a book on the, the desk in front of Him. And what is it? Amazingly enough, it says the Holy Bible. And he says, Randy, I see that this verse taught this, but you didn't do that. Why didn't you? Well, I just didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God. Why didn't you? There's no good answer for that. May you and I believe with all of our heart that the Bible is, every word of it, the Word of God. May we make whatever changes are necessary bringing our life into harmony with it, living in full compliance to its wonderful teachings, for nothing else on the day of judgment will matter. As you and I develop that even more thoroughly, notice Paul's famous question. It's an amazing thing to recollect the structure of Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Here, as these in Rome were making points to Paul, they were asking him questions he appreciated and said, What saith the Scripture? Paul didn't quote Roman law to answer him. He didn't quote Old Old Testament history in terms of anything other than what saith the Scripture. If only you and I believe that today. How do I know how to live morally and ethically and uprightly? I don't go to the tech library and find some book. I don't fall back on the matters of sociology or psychology. I ask, What saith the Scripture? And whatever the Bible says, that answers it. If the Bible says it's wrong, then that settles this discussion. If the Bible endorses it, then that's right no matter what man may say. Don't you love the Bible? You could perhaps appreciate as we come to these additional passages. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What a beautiful passage. Among other things, it teaches us about the power of the Word of God. This book is genuinely powerful. It can change the course of history if people will follow it and obey it. It can change the course of individual lives, obviously. Many of us in this auditorium are a testimony to that. Paul forevermore said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. That's going through verse 17 of that same chapter. Paul used that word dunamis. I'm not ashamed with the gospel of Christ, for it's the dunamis of God. That's the same word from which you and I get words dynamo, dynamite. The Bible is God's dynamite to blast sin and ungodliness out of the lives of people. You and I have got to believe that. And when we do, and when we obey it, we shall then live in a way that's pleasing unto Him. The powerfulness of that word, as you'll see at the bottom of that slide, should give us a great deal of confidence. The human family, as you and I know, often languishes in uncertainty. It languishes in disbelief and knowing what to do. But isn't it amazing to recollect how certain God's people were? Noah had never seen it rain. Well, why did he build an ark? Why did he invest all that effort and time for all those years? It's because he was certain it was going to rain. And it was certain because God told him. Noah believed what God said. Do you and I believe it? Do we believe there's coming a day of judgment that every one of us is going to stand there and give accounting for what we've done or haven't done? Do we believe it? This book says that that's the way it's going to be. If we do, then we will strive to live rightly. There's an entire eternity. Wherever you and I find ourselves consigned, be it heaven or hell, that'll never change. Can you imagine being in hell? The first instant you're there and recognizing that's the way it'll be without ever a possibility of change. That's what the Bible teaches. One last thing on that slide. If this is the attitude then that is set before us in the Bible, namely it is the Word of God, then one last thing and the lesson will be yours. You and I ought to love this Word. We've somewhat hinted at that throughout the lesson, but if it is the Word of God, and surely it is, we ought to love it. Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Several verses later, one verse 140 of the same chapter. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Do you and I love the Bible? Do we love the presentation that it makes? Are we thankful to God for it? If that's the way that we feel, then we ought to earnestly strive at once to obey it. What about you and what about me? Are you obedient to the Bible as you lift it high for the book that it is? It is the Word of God. It doesn't merely contain the Word of God. You'll notice... What an eager consideration should be characteristic of us then when we give thought to studying it. I would ask you to consider Psalm chapter 1, verse number 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. 
Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two possibilities. One is a way of perishing. The other is a way of life. And you'll notice the Word of God in verse 2 was a critical matter in it. For those who did not perish delighted in the law of God. Do you delight in the Bible? Do you find it a matter in which there's such pleasure and delight? I hope that as this year now is before us, that if that is not the way that you or I feel, we will strive to begin to make it so. As you and I read it and study it, faith will develop and grow. And we will soon love that Word. We'll look forward to times of studying it. We'll look forward to times of being in Bible classes and worship where the teachings of it are lifted high. The Word of God, as we come to the bottom of that slide, perhaps Acts 17:11 is an amazing description of another New Testament congregation. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. That text of Acts 17.11 reminds us then that here was a congregation, this congregation in Berea. How wonderfully they searched the Scriptures. May we here at Pippin be described that same way. May that be descriptive of us in 2016. May it be descriptive of us individually as well. As we close our lesson this morning, some in our world affirm the Bible is not the Word of God, but they are wrong. Some in our world affirm the Bible merely contains the Word of God, but they're mistaken. And then there are those who confidently affirm the Bible is the Word of God. May you and I be of that number, and may we, in fact, give our lives if it's required in order to live out the fullness of the faith involved in that statement. There might be someone in the audience this very morning whose life is not an open testament to the Bible as the Word of God. For if you're not believing it, you're not likely to obey it. If you really believe that there's an eternity, and if you believe that your life is not right before God, why not change today? Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If we could be of help to anyone today, in that regard, might we notice what the Bible commands. To those that are an alien sinner, you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins and you must confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that, what a sweet day it would be this first Sunday in 2016 for you. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but you've lost sight of the incredible character of the Word of God... Why not be brought back closer to that today? Let us pray to God for you on behalf of strength, on behalf of forgiveness of sins that have been your failure in light of the Word of God. If we could help you today in either of those ways, why not come at this moment while together we stand and while we sing?